today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Interesting piece in McLean's Magazine, Canada's Public Health Data Meltdown. It's by Justin Ling. He's a freelance investigative uh, journalist. And, you know, COVID-19 has certainly exposed lots of weaknesses uh, that we have seen in government. Uh, in, well, I would say in virtually all walks of life. And, and, but certainly with government and the ability to be nimble, the, the ability to be flexible and pivot, those are all key words that we heard during the first wave of this uh, global pandemic. Uh, private companies were doing it quite quickly. And it's really, uh, I think, pointed to some inefficiencies in governments and uh, uh, certainly where they're, uh, they need to be brought up to date, to, to put it lightly. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Justin Ling. Uh, and again, wrote the piece for McLean's Canada's Public Health health data melt, uh, meltdown. Justin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Could be worse. <laughs> I hear you. Well said. So uh, this has exposed, the pandemic has exposed uh, inefficiencies within the government and things that uh, uh, perhaps uh, aren't as fashionable but certainly need our attention. Talk about this data system and, and how that has hindered our ability to uh, combat COVID-19. Right. So let me give you a really, really quick history lesson. If you roll back the clock to you know 1998, the Canadian government started thinking about the fact that if it wanted to adequately track infectious disease outbreaks and you know manage vaccinations in a you know, reasonable and effective way, it was going to need some sort of national database. Right. We actually administer millions of vaccines every year for mumps and polio and so forth, so on and so forth, and the. Government of Canada, you know, quite rightly sat there and said it would be great if we had a computer system that managed everyone's vaccination records, that kept track of inventories, that kept track of where disease outbreaks were happening and how we could best tackle them. You know, a few years go by, some work gets done, but of course, SARS happens. And the systems are ready, you know, understandably. And the government of Canada is completely hobbled by the fact that it is running on 20 year out of date technology and that it is completely ill-equipped to handle where, you know, where to figure out where outbreaks are happening, to keep track of, um, you know, how it can quarantine cases. It, it had really no IT infrastructure to figure out how vaccinations would work in that circumstance. And so you know, a really good report was written that basically said, we need to get a handle on this. We need to speed up this process. We need to be able to barcode these vaccines and scan them into a registry. We need to be able to do these analytics, you know, programs to do data analysis of, you know, who's immune, who's susceptible, who's sick, so on and so forth. And some years go by and, and some good work gets done. The Cretchen, Martin and Harper governments all put a big chunk of money into building out a, a database, a national vaccine registry called Panorama. And it was supposed to be this cutting edge, you know, forward thinking system that would do all of this stuff. And if Canada had done it properly, Canada would have been a world leader in health IT infrastructure. Here's the problem. Things sort of went off the rails for a bunch of reasons. Some of it was the fault of the contractor, IBM Canada. Some of it was the fault of the provinces. Some of it was the fault of the federal government. But suffice it to say, a bunch of the key features of this system never got put together. A bunch of governments, including the federal government, abandoned the project and sort of let the provinces kind of fend for themselves. So go on a few years, and just before the pandemic, things were on the shambles, right? Some provinces 
were using Panorama really effectively. They had the most recent version. They were using all of the features adequately, and other governments just weren't. They were using, you know, a eight-year-old version of the system. They hadn't installed core parts of it. Things were running off pen and paper, and the pandemic hit. And over the past year, governments have just absolutely refused to adopt or to fix these problems. And now we're going to pay for it. Now we're having a very hard time, you know, keeping track of inventory. We're having to do stuff on pen and paper. We're, we're running off spreadsheets. We're, we're still faxing details of some of these vaccinations. Everything is slower and less efficient because governments completely fell asleep at the wheel and didn't address a lot of these problems. Is This sounds more like an IT issue than it does a health issue. Well, it's both. I mean, you know, the year is 2021. If yeah. you think you can you know, most effectively manage a public health system in a country of 37 million people on Excel spreadsheets, pen and paper, and technology from 2005, you're deluded. You know, this is, this is not... Imagine any other part of our country still running on, you know, Windows 2000. That's basically where we're at in the health system. You know, we've never put up with this in the banking sector. If every time you had to go cash a check or, or you know, get direct deposits, someone had to fill out by hand all the details, we, we, we would lose our patients instantly. Yet we're putting up with it for our health system. Is it safe to say that, again, with this being uh, just a, a neglected IT issue uh, that has obviously affected uh, Health Canada, but is it safe to say that it's like this in many departments in the government, that if their health department isn't up to snuff on IT, what is saying everything else is? I mean, is this an indication of greater flaws within archaic systems in government? I mean, yes and no. I, you, there are certainly parts of the government of Canada that are, are way behind the times. But there's actually very few things for which the government of Canada is sort of uniquely responsible. And public health infrastructure is supposed to be one of the big ones, right? Um, it, it's supposed to be one thing the government of Canada is supposed to take the lead on. You know, when it comes to, you know, tax, you know, paying your taxes, our, our tax infrastructure is not amazing by any stretch, but it's pretty good. When I, go, when I do my taxes in a couple of weeks, I'm going to log on to a private company's software. It's going to import in all of my government of Canada information, all my pay stubs for my employers, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, my investment accounts and whatnot, and it's going to submit it automatically to the government of Canada. It's going to be relatively painless and, and, and efficient. When it comes to health infrastructure, let me give you a really specific example. You know, we need to be able to maintain and track any adverse reactions that happen because of these vaccines. Yeah. Now, this is exceedingly rare, but as we've seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine, they do happen. And there are certain things that can make people at risk for an adverse reaction because of the vaccine. And we need to be able to figure out what those sort of comorbidities or those, those, those correlations are. And as it stands, the government of Canada, tra- you know, the, the, the federal government is responsible for tracking adverse reactions. But it doesn't collect those automatically. It doesn't collect those from any sort of health record. It has its proprietary system that up until basically last year relied on facts. As it is now, hmm. when a province notices an adverse reaction, when a doctor or a hospital catches an adverse reaction, they have to fill out a form save it as a PDF, 
email it to the government of Canada, and some staffer needs to go open that PDF and enter it into their database manually. Some provinces do that weekly. Some provinces do it sort of less frequently. You know, there is no standardization whatsoever. It is completely ad hoc. This is unacceptable. You know, there, there, we, we have public health systems that could automatically report those adverse reactions, and we're not doing it. Why? Like, why? I keep asking this question to the government, both the provinces and the federal government. Why? Why are we doing the most expensive, least efficient, least effective, and most dangerous thing? Why? We all remember SARS and what was supposed to be learned from that. Why would that not be implemented, especially when there's a relatively fresh example? Because when a crisis dissipates, a bit, as we get further away from the crisis, and all of the things we are supposed to have learned kind of take a backseat to whatever the pressing concern of the day is, we tend to just give up. I mean, this is the reality of, of many aspects of Canadian life and Canadian governance. We get complacent, inertia yeah. takes hold, and we just don't do the crucial things we were supposed to do that will save us a lot of pain and heartache the next the next crisis justin do you and, think you'll be having this conversation a few years down the road when on why didn't we learn from COVID 19 if i do i i will lose all faith in our system yeah. it is really crucial we don't just fix this in a couple of years we fix it now like immediately it is you know the government of canada didn't start seeking out a company to fix some of these gaps until november you know nine months into the pandemic we, we, what were they doing for those nine months it should not have come as a surprise to anybody that they would need a national data picture, that they would need to track vaccinations, that they would need to track immunity, yet they waited nine months. It's unbelievable. It's time we get on this now. It's time the pressure mounts for the government to address this immediately. It's time that we don't let this crisis kind of get into the rearview mirror. We need to confront this immediately and not let governments get away with sort of shrugging it off and saying we'll get to it later. So obviously this isn't one of those fashionable issues that gets a lot of attention or gets you a lot of votes, but obviously can be extremely expensive. Uh, so what needs to be done here? How long is this fix? Well, it, you know, it is expensive, but it actually saves us money. Every estimate I've ever looked at this basically says that you might have to spend $200 million on one aspect, but you'll save a billion. It will actually reduce government spending by improving these systems. You know, and that should be reason enough. I mean, if you're looking to, to save a couple pennies, especially as we're getting out of this crisis and government deficits are mounting, this is a great way to do it. We could save a tremendous amount of money. Provinces are already underwater in health care costs. This could save us huge pockets of money. That should be reason enough. But more than that, we may have to continue administering COVID-19 vaccines for more than a year or maybe even longer. We're not going to be able to do that effectively if we can't track who got what vaccine when and who needs a second, third, or fourth, or fifth dose into the future, we need to be able to do this. Now, if governments think they can just get away with sort of bobbing this off and giving up on it, well, you know, I, you know, I think that's on to them. But I think it's on to us as voters and the media and so on to hold their feet to the fire and say, no, you, you need to fix this. You promised to fix this in 2003. You promised to fix this in 2010. You got to do it this time. We're not going to take, we'll get to it as an answer. 
Is this, uh, Justin, in your mind, uh, a case of, of, of priorities, just different priorities, and as you said, things getting lost in the sauce, or is this government working in silos and not knowing the right hand, not knowing what the left hand's doing? I think it's a bit of both, right? I think it's complacency to a larger degree. You know, there are many governments around the world, when they get packets or pallets of COVID-19 vaccines, they pull out a cell phone, they scan the barcode on the side, it populates a registry of all the vaccines they have. When they send out individual pallets of vaccines to hospitals, the hospital scans it, it updates the, you know, the, the government system. When they administer the vaccine to somebody, they scan it again. It goes into that person's immunization record. And all along the way, you've saved tremendous time and energy. The problem in Canada is that governments have actually refused to implement that technology, telling companies, no, we think how we're doing it now is more effective. Well, how we're doing it now is literally going into the system and manually entering a like 20-digit alphanumeric code. To some degree, we need to shake these people and say, wake up. You know, it is the year 2021. It's not good enough to be running on manual analog systems anymore. We have to get to the cutting edge of this, or we're going to continue wasting money. We're going to continue wasting vaccine doses, for one. We're going to continue putting people at risk. You know, it's time we take advantage of the technology instead of resisting it. And I think it's going to require the Public Health Agency of Canada taking the lead on this. For whatever reason, They've insisted on taking a backseat. They haven't tried to push national standards to the provinces. They haven't tried to help the provinces implement this system. It's going to require federal leadership. We can't let the provinces keep doing their own thing. And what's more, we're, we're, we're creating inefficiencies in the system by letting provinces sort of do their own thing without talking to each other. In many cases, a province is spending a bunch of money developing a technology that the province next door already has. Why aren't we sharing why are we working together? This is not a case of provincial jurisdiction, right? There's, there's, mm. there's you know, no risk here of provinces losing their authority. There's only benefits to be had. Are we seeing this or does this affect the performance of Health Canada or NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization? And the reason I ask that, Justin, maybe these are related, maybe they're not. But we, we, we have certainly seen a lot of confusion and, and a lot of hesitancy, uh, hesitancy around vaccine, especially the AstraZeneca, uh, because Health Canada and NACI are, are, are giving us two completely different uh, uh, answers, two completely different conclusions on, on their analysis. Now, obviously, two independent bodies, which is great because they look at it from two different angles. But at the end of the day, you have to think, do, do they not communicate with each other to at least to at least provide some messaging that isn't confusing and doesn't uh, and doesn't contradict what the other has just said. It well, just seems yeah. neither side is talking to each other. Well, the core problem here is that Health Canada and NACI and the provinces, they don't have the data on this. Yeah. Right? Like I said, we're not really collecting data on our vaccine administration in any meaningful way. The provinces are required to send some level of vaccination data to the federal government. But all too frequently, it's, it's inadequate, it's occasional, it's infrequent, and it's not capturing the data points that many European countries are doing. You know, Israel is collecting a massive amount of data yeah. about their vaccine effort, and it's actually helping them devise strategies and policies and recommendations around those vaccines and around what you can do once you're vaccinated. 
Canada can't do that because we're not getting the data. You know, we've known for a long time the federal government does not have the visibility in terms of immunity from infectious diseases across the country. It's just not a thing we can do. So we're relying on data from the Europeans and the Americans and the Israelis. So when you see NASI and Health Canada and other you know, public health officials sort of debating around vaccines, it's because they're relying on other countries' data. But the reality is Canada is not Norway. We're not Germany. We're not the UK. We're very, yeah. we're very, very different. We have a different, um, you know, a whole bunch of different, um, you know, health issues. We have different population bases. Um, and it is really frustrating to watch us be at the mercy of other governments and basically having to rely on, you know, what's reported to the WHO or what's reported in the media or in peer-reviewed journals. We should be able to look at our own data and say to ourselves, okay, we know that we've administered, let's say, a million AstraZeneca doses, and thus far we've seen zero adverse reactions. But we can't, oftentimes we can't do that. We don't have the visibility. We don't have the data collection. We don't have the data reporting. So, yeah, we're actually seeing currently, in real time, our efforts hobbled because we don't have the IT infrastructure needed to do this effectively. Are we building this plane while we're flying it to turn out of the first wave? Are we being forced to fix this now? I frankly don't think so. You know, I got a hold of a, uh, a solicitation document for industry that I mentioned went out in November. And some of these gaps are being addressed. And I'm told that, you know, finally, in the next few weeks, the Public Health Agency of Canada is going to adopt Panorama, the system used by most of the provinces that it helped build, by the way. But I don't think from what I've seen and what the government has told me, and by the way, they're being incredibly secretive about this for no reason whatsoever. But from what I've been told, I'm not confident that what they're doing is adequate. It seems to me like it's tinkering around the edges, trying to address some of the gaps without fundamentally improving the infrastructure to the degree it's needed. So I'm not even sure we're trying to fix it as we're flying. I, I, you know, I think we're trying to design the blueprints while we're you know, careening through the skies. I, it, is, it is wildly inadequate. And what's more, the government of Canada is just not being forthcoming about this. They're not acknowledging this issue. Every time I ask them about this, their response is, our systems work great. No, we won't tell you anything about it. No, we won't let you talk to anybody who's working on this currently. No, we won't give you any of the, the documentation about what's, what we're actually doing. I've had to you know, do this through leaks, through talking to industry insiders, you know, through going back through old reports and audits of the system. The government of Canada is being absolutely opaque about this, in part because I think they know that what they're doing isn't sufficient. Justin Ling has been with us, freelance investigative journalist, latest piece for McLean's Canada's public health data meltdown and our ability to track public health data during and before and after a global pandemic. Here's hoping changes are made. Justin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new poll suggesting uh, by campaign, uh, campaign research uh, suggesting that our attitudes are changing about COVID-19 vaccines uh, and the support for vaccination is growing. Let's bring in Nick Cavallis, principal at Campaign Research and is with us now. Nick, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yep, doing great. How are you? 
I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, so your thoughts on uh, attitudes about vaccines, where were they at the beginning of this? Where are they now? Yeah, we, you know, five out of 10 voters uh, were telling us back uh, three months ago, you know, just over the Christmas break, that um, they would be interested in receiving the vaccine as soon as possible, or yes, right away, once Health Canada approved it. Um, and that number has gone up from five out of 10 voters to now six out of 10 voters. So wh- how do you explain that? Is it we're we're becoming more confident about vaccine or due to the slower rollout, are we becoming more anxious? Yeah, well, I think that there's a group of people, there's a very small group of people that have been adamantly saying that they will not take the vaccine. Um, and that group hasn't grown or gotten smaller. It sits at around, you know, seven or eight percent. But there's a group in the middle that says, you know, they probably will get the vaccine, but they want to wait and see how things go first. And that group is now starting to get a little bit smaller. Uh, and I think that's because of the confidence um, that they're seeing in the, in the vaccine results around the other, other jurisdictions around the world. So that is, uh, this isn't necessarily vaccine hesitancy, but more one of caution. They're interested. They just want to wait. There, there's a small group, yeah. It's about a quarter of the population now. It was as high as 35%. So that's gone down. People wanting it more and right away has gone up a little bit. And so things are moving in the right direction. There's some hesitant in Ontario, there's some hesitancy in the 905, um, particularly uh, Halton Peel and York Simcoe Durham regions. And there's a little bit more hesitancy with millennials. And I, you know, I don't know why, because. Um, it could be that younger people don't don't feel like they need to get a vaccine because they're healthier uh, or they're more skeptical. We don't know exactly why that is. But younger people, less, much less than older people, are more hesitant. We've certainly seen the mixed messaging around AstraZeneca. The premier got his shot uh, this morning. Is it different depending upon the vaccine? It's not a vaccine in general thing. It depends what brand it is. No, we haven't been, and we haven't been asking uh, those questions in our right. research, so I can't answer that question. What I can tell you is, is that when when we did introduce information from the CDC website about mRNA vaccines, word for word, that tended to push people away from wanting the vaccine right away and more into I want to wait and see category. Because of the new technology. That's right. That's right. So are, are, do you think uh, this is people becoming more comfortable? As like, like you've said, we're seeing, uh, you know, the U.K. finish up. We're seeing the United States finish up. Uh, is that enough to, to, to uh, increase confidence? And, and how much does it increase when we see our leaders getting shots? Well, I mean, I, I would just tell you my view of that. I, I think confidence in the vaccine is growing. I think... Um, our leaders getting the vaccines, that's a good move for everyone uh, to see. And um, I think that the results around the world, and, and, in, and in Ontario, in the LTCs particularly, um, you know, deaths are way down, um, and all the LTC residents are are vaccinated. So I think everyone has the confidence, uh, or not everyone, but a growing amount of people in Ontario have more confidence and are ready to get the vaccine as soon as it's available to them. 
Do you think that is because we are now in a third wave and we've certainly, you know, people have become perhaps a little lax through the second wave and such. And, oh, yeah, we're almost there. We're almost there. And now all of a sudden it becomes uh, plainly obvious that these new variants are of more concern. They spread faster. They're more dangerous. Has the variants and the third wave, do you think, changed opinion here? No, I don't. I don't think so because it's we've been polling on this every couple of weeks um, since December, and so it's been going up a point or two um, every you know twice a month. So it's been growing steadily before the third wave was even really something that people were thinking about. As we move uh, through this vaccine phase, what do you think the hesitancy rate will be? How many do you think, once everybody who wants one gets one, any idea where we'll, where we'll sit on this? Uh, because I guess we're still looking for 70% for herd immunity. Do you think we're going to get there? I do think we're going to get there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on, on this stuff, but based on what I've read, doing my research before doing some of this polling and putting these questions together, you know, 75% is something that is achievable. And then looking at the data and how it, how it's growing um, with the population more and more open to getting it yet and saying, yes, I want to get the vaccine right away. I think that we can definitely get to a place where at 75, the question is, can we get the vaccine to do that and how quickly? Do you think it is going to require an, an, a more behavioral change? Uh, and, and what's our attitude when it comes to stay at home? Well, listen, I mean, the, our polling that we did for the Toronto Star asked those questions, too. And, and um, two-thirds of the voters were very clear that they thought that the current restrictions from, from, that were in place a week ago before the stay-at-home stay order was brought in or even more restrictions needed to be brought in for the entire month of April. That was the question. Two-thirds of the voters chose, you know, the, the two options that, that, um, that said that. So um, some think that the government's doing a good job, leave the restrictions in place, bring in more restrictions for the whole month of April. Other people think government's doing a bad job, got to get more restrictions in place for the whole month of April. Those two groups together total two-thirds of uh, Ontario voters. So uh, we're we're pretty close to those that want it open and those that want it closed. It's a very fine line there. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that um, it's pretty clear what the population wants. You know, um, there's only about five to six percent of the population that says that this whole thing, lockdowns, uh, is excessive and unnecessary and not effective. Um, the balance of the people. Uh, are think the government's done a good job, but they'd like to see the restrictions loosened a bit so that uh, the focus is more on the economy. So you have you have 55% saying the government's done a good job managing this whole pandemic over a year, and you have 40% saying they've done a bad job. And um, but two thirds of them think the restrictions or more restrictions need to be in place for the whole month of April. Wow. It's uh, a fascinating place to be. And I guess the only uh, or the bright spot at the end of all of this is there is vaccine on the way that there wasn't perhaps during the first and second wave. So hopefully what we're going through now uh, will be a shorter duration than what we've seen in the past. I, I do think so. And I, and I do think that, you know, um, by August, you know, half the population will be uh, vaccinated. Everybody who wants one will have gotten one. The weather will be nice. More people will be outside and think there'll be a sigh of relief. Um, but, you know, until, 
getting from 50 to 75 or 50 to 70 or whatever that number is that we can get to will take a lot of work and it'll take the whole year. Nick Cavallis, principal at Campaign Research, new poll for the Toronto Star suggesting support for COVID-19 vaccines is growing in Ontario. Good news. Nick, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Obviously, woke up this morning to sad news that Prince Philip had passed away. To talk more about all of this, Jamie Samhan is with us, online editor, producer, and royal commentator for Entertainment Tonight Canada and is with us now. Jamie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing as good as can be in yourself. Not too bad. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, this obviously, uh, the, the man was 99 years old, but still uh, startles people when we hear news like this. Absolutely. I mean, he was just a few weeks ago in the hospital for, you know, around a month's stay. So it was expected, but I think everybody was hoping that he was going to make it to his 100th birthday, which would have been in June. Uh, unfortunately, as we all now know, that uh, he just couldn't quite push through. And, uh, you know, it is, it's a sad moment. He lived a very long and historic life. Boy, that would have been something if he had made his 100th birthday, my goodness. Uh, he, he, he was quite a character. Describe, uh, for those that may not be royal, royal followers, what he was like. Uh, Prince Philip is definitely known for his kind of quirky comments. Uh, some of them have definitely been off-color, and you know there has been commentary about that. But in general, he just wanted to you know, make people smile and make people laugh. Uh, he was also you know, a little bit short-tempered when it came to things, and he just he didn't understand. Well, he, I'm sure he understood, but he just didn't see the need for all the pomp and the circumstance that sometimes surrounded these things. And you know, he just wanted to get it done and connect that to the people as much as possible. And that's really what his life was about: was you know making those connections and you know for the good of the Commonwealth. Obviously, uh, spent his life uh, in the shadows of Queen Elizabeth. Maybe that's the, the incorrect word or term to use, but certainly, um, you know, she was the one. He, he was the one supporting her. She was the one uh, in charge. But I hear that he was quite a rock within the family itself, and quite a stable and secure uh, figure within the family. Yeah, well, Queen Elizabeth was definitely, you know, she is the head of the monarchy and the head of the family. Behind closed doors, Prince Philip was the head of the family, and Queen Elizabeth frequently referred to him as her strength and stay. And, you know, she was, she's you know, this huge figure, and the one person that she could turn to that could probably be the only person that was truly honest with her and that she could turn to and go to in any moment was Prince Philip. They were married for 74 years. That's something that I don't think My. anybody can relate to, and it's going to be a huge loss to her. Uh, she's going to be turning 95 soon and not have him next to her it's going to be a big loss yeah my goodness um and just think of what they've lived through together over those 74 years uh, I, I understand that uh he and prince harry were quite tight what can you tell us about that they were well prince harry has had you know fallings out with the rest of his family his father prince charles and his brother william uh he was still very very close to both his grandparents and would frequently call them uh Harry recently, you know, described how they would have video calls with uh, his grandparents who were still in England while they're in California, so they could see Archie running around the backyard. Um, so they were still very close, and this is definitely going to hit him very hard, not having that connection back to the royal family that was one of the kind of the last remaining ties. Any word on a, a funeral service or memorial of some sort, especially during COVID-19? What uh, I understand he didn't want a lot of fuss, but uh, what do you see happening here? Yeah, so Prince Philip actually, before his death, you know, had a big 
role in playing what is going to happen when his, with his funeral. He didn't want a big state funeral, and he's not going to get one. Uh, partly because of COVID, it's just not even practical to have it. So there will be a smaller uh, you know, military service at St. George's Chapel, which is on the Windsor Estate. Uh, for most people, they recognize it as the same place that Harry and Meghan got married in. Um, we'll expect more details probably tomorrow or on Sunday of exactly what that's going to detail. But they don't want a lot of people attending because of COVID. But it also ties in nicely with uh, Prince Philip's wishes to have this more of a family affair. Any idea whether uh, we will see this through camera or such, uh, or, or will it be an extremely private affair? I think there'll be some documentation. Uh, I don't think the entire thing will be televised, much how, you know, when Queen Elizabeth passes, that definitely will be. Uh, we'll definitely probably maybe see arrivals of the royal family, but with inside the chapel, I'm going to expect that it's going to be a private moment. Will we hear from her in, in the upcoming days? I would definitely think that we're going to hear something from Queen Elizabeth. It might not be the next day or two. She is going to be going into an eight-day period of mourning. After that, though, we may get a few statements from her, especially as, you know, as the funeral does take place. Uh, she, you know, she's basically the grandmother of the nation, and people are going to expect to be able to turn to somebody. And you know, while it is her husband, a lot of people, you know, have grown up with both of them in their lives, and she'll definitely probably say a few words. Jamie Samhan has been with us, online editor, producer, and royal commentator for Entertainment Tonight Canada. Make sure you're watching ET Tonight for more on all of this. Jamie, thanks so much. Be well. Have a good one. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.